0: Well, if you're new with us here at Redeeming Grace Church, welcome again. We're glad that you're here, friends. What we're getting ready to do this morning is the same thing that I or another preacher gets up and does every single Sunday morning here at Redeeming Grace Church. I'm gonna open God's word and I'm going to to it's gonna to be to a particular text of the scripture actually, and I'm going to explain what it means and then I'm gonna to seek to apply it to our lives. And so normally rather than me just picking a topic and then getting scripture to support that topic, we preach instead here at Redeeming Grace Church through specific passages of of the Bible. And uh, normally that looks like us just going straight through books of the Bible. So earlier this year we went through the book of Genesis and each fall we've been going through the book of Matthew. And so today we arrive at Matthew chapter 12. We call this type of preaching expository or expositional preaching. You hear that word expose right there because what we're trying to do is we're trying to expose on its own terms the agenda of God's Word. Because we believe and when we do that, we hear the Lord speaking to us. That is indeed his agenda. And so this morning, our expositional series has brought us to Matthew chapter 12. So please turn there your Bibles. Matthew 12. It's on page 817, I think, of the 16 of the Bibles <laughs> underneath your chairs. If you don't have a Bible with you today, please use that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take it home and make it your Bible. We would love for you to have it. Friends, if we as we've gone through Matthew. Uh, we've observed that Jesus, throughout the first year of his ministry, was renowned, wasn't he, among the people of Galilee for the mighty works that he did and the authoritative teaching that he gave. However, most of Jesus' contemporaries didn't grasp how massively significant the purpose of his miracles was at after all, which was to signify that the kingdom, God's reign, had arrived. God was there in Jesus to rule in the hearts of his people. Instead of bowing their knees to God's reign, most of the people in Jesus's day were unmoved. They rejected his kingship. And this rejection of Jesus is, is most pronounced, it's most noticeable in the response of the religious leaders among the Jews. Already in chapter 9, if you remember a few sermons ago, how the scribes accused Jesus of blasphemy when Jesus declared a paralytic's sins to be forgiven. And and there was no indication that these these, uh, scribes changed their mind when Jesus proved that authority by giving that paralytic the ability to walk. Later in that same day, the Pharisees, who with the scribes were experts of the Jewish law, took Jesus to task for his, quote-unquote, impurity of befriending tax collectors and sinners. And then later in Matthew 9, the Pharisees blasphemously accused Jesus of, of driving demons out of a man through the power of Satan himself. Now as we reach Matthew 12, again a year or so into Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees' hostility toward Jesus that is kind of just simmered on the surface, over the past year, now it's going to boil over into open conflict to the point that at the end of our passage in verse 14, the Pharisees don't just accuse Jesus of blasphemy. They plot how to kill him. Let's read together our text today, Matthew 12, verses 1 to 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is, what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the, the priests in the temple profaned the, the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of this text, which I I trust will be the main idea of this sermon, is this. The main idea of Matthew 12, 1-14. Obeying God is not about rigidly keeping a list of rules, but about exalting the superiority of Jesus and reflecting His mercy. Obeying God and even religious observance it isn't about rigidly keeping a list of rules, but instead it's about exalting the superiority, the supremacy, the, the preeminence of Jesus and reflecting His mercy. Two points today that reflect the sections of this text, the superiority of Jesus in verses 1 to 8 and the mercy of Jesus in verses 9 to 14. Brothers and sisters, I pray that today we will together understand even more something of the greatness and kindness of Jesus and that by beholding him we would begin to reflect his mercy to others let's look at this first point the superiority of Jesus well in case you didn't notice this passage centers on the sabbath it's mentioned eight times in 14 verses probably difficult to miss Jesus and his disciples happened to be walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and, and since his disciples were hungry, they began to, to pluck and eat the heads of the grain. It's the agrarian equivalent of you know, stopping at a drive-thru or grazing at a supermarket. This field couldn't have been far off the beaten path because verse 2 says that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw what Jesus and his disciples did, and they levied a charge against them that they had broken the Mosaic law. Now, if you and I had seen someone doing this, say in the field across South Bullard Avenue over there, if that were a wheat field or a barley field or cornfield or whatever, we might accuse that person of of what? Of stealing. They're taking what doesn't belong to them. But friends, if you were to travel to other parts of the world even today, especially cultures in an agrarian society where people kind of live hand to mouth, what Jesus and his disciples did was and still is very much an accepted practice. It's not stealing in those cultures to take a handful of grain or a piece of fruit as long as you don't do any serious harvesting. The Pharisees didn't accuse Jesus and his disciples of of breaking the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. They accused them of breaking the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Now I'm guessing... That when we start talking about the observance of the Sabbath, it feels like the ancient and distant world of the Bible gets a little bit more ancient and distant, right? Because unless you've practiced Judaism at some point in your life, or perhaps we're a Seventh-day Adventist, the whole concept of the Sabbath day feels awfully foreign. But here at the outset, let me encourage us to guard against the, the type of thinking that this passage, because it is a bit remote, must not have anything to do with me today, Because we don't observe the Sabbath after all. We're here on Sunday. We're going to have to peel back some layers first, friends, before making application. In fact, the beginning of this sermon is going to be explanation heavy. But I want you to understand here from the outset that this passage is very much applicable to us as Christians today. To understand what's going on here, we need to first make sure we understand what the Sabbath day is. So let's travel back. Before we move forward, when God gave Moses the instructions of the old covenant and created Israel as a nation at Sinai, he commanded them to set aside the seventh day of the week as a day of rest, just as God rested on the seventh day after creating the world. But the Sabbath wasn't just a kind of the the content or the stuff of a, a command. It was the sign of the covenant. So just as God's covenant with Noah had a visible sign in the rainbow, God's covenant with Abraham had a visible sign in, in circumcision, so God's covenant with Israel through Moses had a visible sign, a visible marker of his relationship with his people, and it was the Sabbath day. It was to remind them not only of creation, but that he had delivered his people from their bondage in Egypt and had kept his promises to Abraham, has not he? That he would make his offspring a great nation and to give them the land that he had promised them. So, by looking back at both creation and redemption, God was reminding his people that, that they were in relationship with him. When Israel observed the Sabbath, they experienced physical rest and they evidenced loyalty to the Lord. That's why the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was so serious, even as Nate read this morning. Those who profaned the Sabbath incurred the death penalty because the Lord Himself had set apart that day as holy. So that the Sabbath day in Israel's life wasn't a light, trivial thing. In many ways, it was right at the heart of their life before the Lord. Here in a couple weeks on Saturday, December 25th, just so happens that Christmas Day is on a Saturday this year, you will be hard-pressed to find a business open, right? Your favorite restaurants, unless it's like Waffle House or something like that, your favorite restaurants and grocery stores and shops will likely be closed. I don't know about you, I've always found that driving through town on Christmas Day is just kind of eerie, isn't it? It's like, what's going on? Everything is closed. Life has stopped. Now imagine that happening every single Saturday in Israel's life. Even Jews who lived in other places outside the borders of Israel were expected to honor the Sabbath. It was a source of religious observance and national pride. And so it makes sense why the Pharisees so scrupulously protected the Sabbath. They thought that that pleasing God meant avoiding every possibility of breaking His law. Since the Pentateuch only gave a few examples of what constituted work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees created an elaborate set of regulations to protect against Sabbath breaking. If you were to read the Mishnah, the the rabbinic explanation of the law, you'll find 39 different categories of types of activity that the rabbis said were work designed to protect the people against breaking the Sabbath law. Here's a couple of of examples. If you travel more than 3,000 feet away from your home, so say the rabbis, that's work, and you've broken the Sabbath. If you write two letters on the Sabbath day, that's work. One is okay, two, you're working hard. You know what I'm saying? The Pharisees had created a burdensome, nearly impossible system of rules in their efforts to be holy and to please God. Now, relating to what Jesus' disciples did there on that Sabbath day, the Old Testament itself in Exodus 34 21 says that harvesting on the Sabbath is forbidden. And so when the Pharisees saw Jesus' disciples pluck and eat the grain, they saw an opportunity to accuse them. Even though the disciples they they weren't working by any normal definition, were they? They didn't use tools. They didn't sweat. Right In the Pharisees' mind, though, when the disciples picked off the heads of the grain, well, that's reaping. And when they popped the grain out of its husk, well, that's threshing. They are harvesting. They were guilty. They have profaned the Lord's day. Friends, no wonder Jesus described the people he invited to himself just earlier in, in chapter 11, verse 28, as weary from labor and heavily burdened. In an effort to obey God, the Pharisees had weighed the people down with rules and regulations that were virtually impossible to keep. There's a reason, I think, that Matthew placed this account about the Sabbath day right after Jesus' invitation to come to him for rest. I'm sure the events were around the same time, but he's drawing our eyes to a thematic connection of where true Sabbath rest is found. Let's look at Jesus' rebuttal of the Pharisees in verses 3 to 8. It is masterful. He beats these Old Testament experts at their own game. He proves his point to the Pharisees by utilizing two Old Testament examples or analogies and one Old Testament quotation. First, he defends his disciples from a story in Israel's history. Look at verse 3. Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. I love how Jesus opens up both of these analogies. Haven't you read this? (laughs) Like anyone familiar with the Old Testament should know this, Pharisees. Surely you who are the so-called expert teachers of the law are familiar with this. Jesus' words drip with irony, don't they? Haven't you read about what David did when he was hungry? Jesus referenced uh, 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 6, where David and his men, famished by hunger, received from Abimelech the priest the bread of the presence to eat. According to the law, every Sabbath day, the priests were to bake 12 loaves of bread and to, to put them in the holy place of God's presence in the tabernacle. These 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel before God and God's special presence with them. The bread of the presence. And according to the law, only one group of people was permitted to eat that bread. And that was the priests. After they changed out the bread, they, were, they could eat it to sustain themselves that day. Okay? So, and yet, David and his men, likely on the Sabbath day, because again, the bread had been taken out, they ate of that bread. And nowhere, nowhere in the Scripture, not in 1 Samuel and certainly not by Jesus, nowhere in the Scripture is David and his men chastised or corrected for doing that. So what's Jesus' point? Is this point that hunger overrides Sabbath law? Whenever you're hungry, feel free to disobey God, right? Your appetites win. No, he's not willy-nilly negating God's Word. Rather, Jesus' point is who it was. That was allowed to break God's law. It's not just any Joseph Shmosif in Israel, was it? This is the anointed one, the anointed one who was destined to be king of God's people. Abimelech gave David and his men the bread uh, <clears throat> only allowed for the, for the priests because he knew that David and his men were on a journey sanctioned by God as they fled from the wrath of Saul. That was what was going on there. Saul was trying to kill God's anointed one. Abimelech knew that, and he gave the bread to David and his men. So what's Jesus' point then? If King David was allowed this exception, how much more David's greater son? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, isn't it? Although he doesn't say it explicitly here, it's if Jesus is saying something greater than David is here. The one whom God promised David would sit on his throne forever is here. The Messiah has arrived. So if David and his companions were given a divine exception to break God's law, then surely the Messiah's friends should be granted a release from your rabbinic list of do's and don'ts. Now that first analogy is stunning enough. But Jesus' second example is even more so. Look at verses 5 and 6, where Jesus shifts from Israel's history to the law itself. Or have you not read... In the law, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. What an argument. I mean, Jesus points out to the Pharisees that ever since the giving of the covenant, the priests have worked on the Sabbath. They've profaned it, as it were, and yet are not guilty. They're guiltless. Why? Because God instructed them in the covenant to work on the Sabbath. They were obeying the Lord. Numbers 28, 9, and 10 says that, that each Sabbath, two lambs were to be sacrificed and worship to the Lord, along with a grain offering and a drink offering. And of course, that's in addition to preparing the bread of the presence that we already talked about. So friends, who was it that on the Sabbath day butchered the lambs and prepared the wood and gathered the kindling and let the sacrifice and cleaned it up? It was the priests. Who was it that prepared the... The grain offering and the drink offering and baked the bread of the presence. It was the priests. They worked hard on the Sabbath and yet honored God in their work since he had sanctioned them to do that work on that day. Now notice Jesus lesser to greater argument again. Here it's explicit. Something greater than the temple is here. Can you imagine the look on the Pharisees' faces when he said that? Oh, man. Greater than the temple? Who but God is greater than the temple? Who indeed? The temple, like the tabernacle that preceded it, was where God's special presence dwelt among his people. It was at the temple that the priests made daily sacrifices and where the high priests entered the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the sins of his people, of God's people. At the temple, it's like heaven came down to earth, wasn't it? Yet Jesus says something greater then the temple is here. What's he saying? He's insinuating that the need for a physical temple with mediators between the people and God is being superseded by himself. He will provide access to the Father. The man Christ Jesus is the great mediator between God and men. So what's the logic in his argument about the Sabbath to the Pharisees? He says, If the law itself provides an instance where the Sabbath restrictions were superseded by the priests because of their responsibilities in the temple, and something greater than the temple is here now in me, then I take precedence over the Sabbath. And my disciples are guiltless, just like the priests of old. Now for Jesus' third argument. Again, a little explanation heavy here at the beginning. Jesus' third argument, again from the Old Testament in verse 7. He jumps from a story in Israel's history to the law and now to the prophets. He continues, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Again, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for not grasping the meaning of Scripture. But this time he says, you have missed the very heart behind God's law. Jesus takes the Pharisees back to the very same passages of Scripture that he took them to when they indicted him for eating with tax collectors and, and renowned sinners at Matthew's house. He takes them back to Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What's he saying? He's saying that the purpose of the law was not ritualistic formality so that the people can kind of check the God stuff off their daily checklist and then live however they want to. No, the purpose of the law was steadfast love. It's mercy. It's loyalty to God and then a heart of mercy toward others. The Pharisees had forgotten that the Sabbath itself was an evidence, wasn't it, of God's mercy to his people. It was a day that he graciously gave his people for rest to remind them that they had a special relationship with him. And so to burden people by insurmountable rules on the Sabbath, it just flew directly in the face of the reason that God had instituted the Sabbath in the first place. The Pharisees and their legalism had drifted far from the heart of God. And this is a reminder, isn't it, to us that you can be sincere in your effort to please God and even to obey God, but you can be sincerely wrong. And far from the Lord. We're going to come back to Jesus' heart of mercy in verses 9 to 14. But for now, let's turn our attention to verse 8. Where Jesus ties kind of a theological bow on his argument thus far. He says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay. (laughs) So, So not only is Jesus greater than David. Not only is he greater than the temple. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now remember, the Son of Man, he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself when he wanted people to understand his unique authority. He is the exalted Son of Man that Daniel 7 said would receive a global dominion and an everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days. And yet, even in advance of his resurrection and ascension to the highest throne, Jesus says that he, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath day. What does that mean? Well, if I were to say something like the Kansas City Chiefs football team is Lord of the Raiders. (laughs) You'd know what I mean. Bo knows what I mean. Hondo knows what I mean, right? The Chiefs have authority, they rule the Raiders. We'll find out today if that stays true. Likewise, Jesus has authority over the Sabbath day. Now, friends, let's take a step back and think about what Jesus is saying. Saying that he's greater than the temple is pretty close to saying, I'm, 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 I'm God. But now this statement leaves no doubt. Multiple times in the Bible, including in Exodus 31 that we read earlier, God describes the Sabbath day as my Sabbath It's his day that he consecrated as a marker of relationship with his people. The physical rest of the Sabbath was to remind God's people that their rest was in God. And yet Jesus says of the very day that God says is his day, I'm Lord of that day. For a human being to claim this is unthinkable. It's as blasphemous a claim as you can make unless it's true. Friends, again, in Matthew's Gospel, we're face-to-face with a portrait of Jesus Christ in which He's not only profiled as Israel's King, as the great Messiah, but as the Son of God incarnate. He alone has the authority and the divine prerogative to interpret the Sabbath. Jesus is saying that He can declare what the rules for observing the Sabbath are. It's not that that Jesus has the authority to, to kind of relax the Pharisees' harsh restrictions. It's that He, the Lord of the Sabbath, shows us what observing the Sabbath day really means. He determines how the principle of Sabbath observance is worked out. And here's the good news. For this sovereign Lord of the Sabbath, observing it is about mercy. This jives with what Jesus just said earlier in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How does the sovereign Lord that has exclusive authority over the Sabbath choose to utilize that authority? Does he he weaponize it against his enemies? Does he lay down a new set of rules and regulations in place of those of the Pharisees? No, Jesus... Utilizes that authority to emphasize a mercy and a rest that can be only found in him. You know, for those of you who don't follow Jesus, you may have gotten the impression that Christianity is just an oppressive list of do's and don'ts that makes life as unfun as possible. Maybe an obstacle to your becoming a Christian is that you just can't imagine living life constrained by anyone. You're pursuing pleasure. Christianity just kind of seems like a killjoy. Friend, deep down behind all you do, you know what you're doing? You're looking for rest. Maybe you're looking for it in sex and romance, or in your job, or in friendships, or in wealth. You strive at at something, anything, to justify your existence. Something that says you can finally be at peace something that will give your life happiness and meaning and satisfaction. And know that whatever you're looking for apart from Jesus can never give you rest, ever. Nothing or no one apart from Jesus is meant to bear that weight for your soul. Maybe you're on the opposite side of the spectrum. You fancy yourself religious. And in fact, you're, you're pretty impressed by your efforts to live a righteous life. You're devout in your dedication toward God. But your idea of religion looks like a law-filled checklist of keeping the sacraments or doing good works or never missing church or participating in community service or giving your money to the poor. And on and on the list goes. Friends, those things can't give you rest either. In fact, Jesus calls this type of self-justifying laboring to please God a heavy burden that only produces weariness in your soul. Friend, you cannot achieve rest. Let me say that again. You cannot achieve God's rest. You must receive it. It is a gift, not a trophy. So, friend, stop striving and rest in Jesus' work for you. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, everything I've said to our unbelieving friends here today is true for you too. What are the things in your life that you're seeking to find rest in? What in your life really makes you feel like a Christian? What in your life, when you, when you do it and you succeed, makes you say, makes you say to yourself, oh, now I feel right. Now I feel justified. Now I feel like a Christian? Well, for some of you, it might be doing your devotions. Listen, having a quiet time where you read the Bible and pray is a very good thing. But it, as an activity that you perform, is not the source of your rest. Jesus is. Devotions are simply a means to that end, but you ought not to depend on your devotions to give you God's rest. You ought to depend on Jesus. For some of you, it might be serving in a particular way or, or doing a particular type of ministry or, or better yet to be seen by others and to be esteemed highly for doing those things. Maybe for other, others of you, it might be worshiping with a particular style of music or, yeah, I don't know, seeing lyrics on a screen rather than in a, in a piece of paper. Man, I, if that's you, you haven't had rest for about 16 months now and I apologize <laughs> for that. In all seriousness, what is it in your life that makes you say, I do or have this, so now my soul can rest? You know, none of those things I just rattled off are bad. Not even lyrics on the screen, not bad, right? In fact, they're all fine and good, and most are even commendable, but they are all meant to function, friends, as the fruit of the Christian life, not as the root. It's the root that sustains The life of a plant, not the fruit. The fruit results from the the life that the root gives it, right? Beloved, only Jesus is that root for you. Only He's your life-giving source of rest. Only He can justify you before the Father. It's only in Jesus' arms that you find the rest that God intended for you to have because it's there in Jesus' arms that we understand that His life and His death and His resurrection are totally sufficient for us. It's a rest that's free and sustained by Him alone. Friends, you can't get an increased rest through your Christian achievement and then kind of a, a diminished, not so great rest through your failures. Jesus did the work for us, and now we rest in His work, not in our own. Now, before we move on, let me answer the question that I suspect some of you are asking about the Sabbath. Has Sunday replaced Saturday as the Christian Sabbath. So not only should we worship on Sunday, we shouldn't do any work on Sunday. Blue laws all around, right? We're all to be a walking Chick-fil-A on Sunday. <laughs> Certainly Christians have different perspectives about this, but as I understand the Bible and the relationship between the Old and the New Covenants, I believe the answer is, is no. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. And here's the reason. As I've already mentioned, the command to honor the Sabbath day was part of the old covenant that God had made with his people through Moses. And friends, the New Testament is clear, isn't it? That Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant. Like all the law has been fulfilled in Christ. And having fulfilled it, Jesus said, the New Testament says in Hebrews, it is now obsolete. We are no longer under the old covenant law at all. Rather, we live under the gracious law of Christ. So whenever we read our Old Testaments, like when we read it even in our services, we don't make immediate application like directly to ourselves from the words of the the law. We have to first discover how that portion of the Old Testament is fulfilled in in Jesus and, and interpreted by him and the apostles, and then we apply it to ourselves. And in fact, nine out of the 10 commandments Nine out of the ten commandments are reiterated in the the New Testament. They're part of the ongoing law of Christ. But guess which one of the ten is never once commanded in the New Testament for us as his new covenant people? The fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath day. As God's plan unfolded through the Old Testament covenants, God's rest in creation for humanity that was, that was lost in the fall and then pictured in the Sabbath day and even in the land of Canaan, the, the land of rest, so to speak, well, that, that day of Sabbath rest has now come in Jesus. You know, no doubt, the rest, so to speak, of our salvation, our salvation rest, it's still future too, isn't it? Hebrews 4 says, a Sabbath rest awaits for the people of God. We wait eagerly until Jesus returns and consummates what he began. But even now, we enter into that salvation rest that the Sabbath served as a picture of. So then, friends, how do we obey the Sabbath command? How do we honor the Sabbath day? Here's what we do. We cease from our own works. We place our trust in Christ and we rest in him as God's new covenant people, as we re- await his glorious return. So does this mean there's no day of worship set aside under the new covenant? Well, no, there's plenty of evidence, isn't there, that the new covenant in the New, in the new Testament, that the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, is viewed as what? As the Lord's Day. However, there are no specific regulations about the Lord day, Lord's Day, other than the exhortation for what? For God's people to gather in the church with God's people on the first day of the week, and then to do certain things in our gatherings. Listen, it might be profitable to take a day off from work each week. It might be beneficial and and encouraging to a store's employees that it shuts down on Sundays so that the employees can go to church. That's great, but Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Under the old covenant, the Sabbath functioned in a specific way for Israel. And guess what? Under the new covenant, the Lord's Day, highlights what the Sabbath pointed forward to, the greater salvation rest that has come in our Savior Jesus Christ. Let's look at the second point, the mercy of Jesus. We not only see His superiority, we see His mercy. Being that it was the Sabbath, Jesus and His disciples traveled from the field to the synagogue, the place where the Jews gathered to hear God's Word taught. Verse 10 says that one of the attendees of that service that day had a withered hand. That is, the muscles of his hand were were atrophied and deformed by some sort of of malady. And friend, notice what the Pharisees did. They obviously knew that Jesus had the authority to heal that man. They had seen him do things like that. And now as they saw Jesus in the presence of this man, they, they tried to seize upon an opportunity to trap him is it lawful to heal on the sabbath you see under the rabbinic regulations that we've discussed so far healing and medical care were not allowed unless it was to save a person's life or when it couldn't be avoided kind of you know for instance like when a w- woman has to give birth can't can't plan it you know right can't help it when it comes you can you can help her give birth okay that's fine But here, the man with a withered hand wasn't in mortal peril. He was simply in need. And the Pharisees, the rabbis who taught people God's word, cared more about scrupulous observance of their regulations and trapping Jesus than they did about the condition of the man in front of them. He was just a pawn in their plot. Friends, this story highlights a truth. It's as true today as it was then. Legalistic people are unloving people. Those who create extra-biblical rules and regulations and then insist that others live by them like they are, are profoundly unmerciful. And most of the time, they don't even see it. They're blind to their own self-centeredness. In fact, legalistic people often think they're being loving by hoisting their self-made standards upon others and then expecting others to meet those standards like they have. But when others don't meet the standards, what happens? The legalists look down in pride. If only they were as holy as I. Oh, friends, guard yourself against this type of mentality. Guard yourself against a so-called holiness that is more interested in comparison than mercy. That type of holiness does not come from Jesus. Look at Jesus' response in verse 11 to the Pharisees' trapping question. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Again, a masterful response from Jesus, isn't it? Jesus gives a brief parable of sorts where the, the sheep in the parable replaces the man. The, the man with the withered hand. And the fall into the ditch or the pit replaces the man's condition of the withered hand. So so apparently Jesus knew, he apparently knew how the Pharisees would react in this scenario, didn't he? The Jews showed great care for animals and would take whatever action was necessary to help them if they were in danger, and rightly so. The Pharisees, you know, they, they could in this scenario, I guess, just kind of leave the sheep in the pit until the Sabbath day have passed and You know, hope it's still alive and bring it back out, not so they don't do any work. But Jesus knew that's not what they'd do. They'd help the animal in distress. And so if the Pharisees would work to do good to an animal on the Sabbath, but not to a person in need, then they had contradicted their own exposition of the law, hadn't they? Jesus' argument isn't just one of common sense, friends. He's making a profoundly theological claim here. People are of much more value than animals. Friends, you do not have to take a seminary ethics class to understand this. This is is Biblical Ethics 101. Christians have, have always understood that human beings have intrinsic worth and value because our souls are stamped with the image of our Creator. We are reflections of God Himself. To us, human life is invaluable. There's no price tag on it. God created us in His image in a way that He did not with the animals. So it's, it's not as though animals have no value. They're created too. But their value pales in comparison to the inestimable, inestimable value of human beings. So friends, this is why we Christians should despise all forms of wickedness that devalue human life. All forms of wickedness that devalue human life. That's why we hate racism, the devaluing of another image bearer because of their skin color, color or ethnic background. Friends, this is why we ought to pray for those, even from other religious backgrounds, that have atrocities committed against them, like the, the Uyghur Muslims right now in China. That's why Christians believe abortion, the devaluing of preborn life, to be heinous. We don't understand a a developing baby to be a clump of cells that the mother can either dispose of or keep, but rather as a tiny reflection of his or her creator. And in fact, you kind of know when a society is warped in wickedness, when it works harder to protect the life of animals than it does the life of humans created in God's image. Jesus's Jesus' point to the Pharisees is that the Sabbath rest that God intends for his people is not about what you can't do, but profoundly about what you should do in displaying mercy to others. As we enter the rest that God intends for us by trusting in Christ and loving God with all of our hearts, we reflect the intention of the Sabbath by then, then demonstrating that love to other people. Beloved, let's make sure that the version of Christianity that we portray here at Redeeming Grace, when people come into these doors and they see the body of Redeeming Grace Church, let's make sure that we as a church are not reflecting a a haughty, holier-than-thou religiosity or a self-centered, what's-in-it-for-me-ism, but rather that we reflect the gentleness and lowliness of Jesus Christ. After all, that's how he's treated us gently and humbly. As we live in the gospel of Jesus and as the Spirit works in us, I pray that He'll increasingly give us an outward-facing, Christ-shaped tenderness and kindness and mercy. Let's be known as a church that comes alongside the broken and, and lifts up the fallen and strengthens the weak and helps the needy and shares the good news of how others can find the rest that we have found in Jesus. Let's be known as a church that is radically others-focused. Look at verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. Beloved, Jesus doesn't just teach about the priority of mercy. He demonstrates it before all who were there. I mean, how could the Pharisees argue now, right? Jesus had just proved them to be hypocrites and in healing this man, he, he did no work. He simply opened his mouth and spoke, stretch out your hand. And just like with all of his miracles, his authoritative word rolled back the effects of the curse. And this, this man's hand was restored just like his other one. Just like the blind were, were given their sight by Jesus' word. And just like the dead rose to life at the powerful word of Christ. Jesus proved himself in the sight of all to indeed be the merciful Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, surely now, surely now the hearts of the Pharisees would melt and they would turn to worship this this King Messiah. Oh, friend, how I wish and and how they now wish they had done that. Instead, the opposite happened. They hardened their heart. In verse 14 says that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. On the Sabbath. Apparently, while picking heads of grain constitutes work, planning a good murder does not. And these seeds of hatred that we now see in the the Jewish religious leaders would only grow over the next two years of Jesus' ministry until the day that would bloom in full in Jerusalem. They would finally succeed in destroying Jesus. They delivered Him to the Romans... And they crucified the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of glory. They crucified him as if he were a criminal. And yet even in his death, and especially in his death, Jesus displayed the mercy that was the point of the law all along. He told the Pharisees that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And on Golgotha's hill, Jesus willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for rebellious sinners, so that He might pour out God's mercy upon us and that bring us into God's rest. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the law's demand for justice by paying that price for all who would turn from their sin and trust in Him. He made peace. He made rest through the blood of the cross. And because he was innocent, the Father vindicated our Lord by raising him up on the third day so that all who are united to Jesus by faith, we follow his lead into the eternal rest that God designed us to have from the beginning. Friends, how remarkable this merciful and tender Savior is. How incomparable the love of God in Christ towards sinners like you and me May God give us grace not only to rejoice in this love in this Christmas season, may God give us grace to reflect it in our own heart of mercy toward others. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you today. As the Lord of the Sabbath, as the great Lord of glory, our King and our God. Father, sometimes the the best application for a a passage like this isn't really to, to do anything, but just once again to step back and bow our knee and worship our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to do that this morning, Lord Jesus. You are superior to the law. You are better than the temple and you are better and greater than even King David. You have displayed that greatness in your humility and in your lowliness, in your gentleness, in your kindness toward us sinners, and living the life that we should have lived but didn't, dying the death that we deserve to die and then rising from the dead to give us life forever. So, Lord Jesus, we worship you today. We praise you. And we ask that you would so fill our minds and our hearts with this vision, this this sight of you and your mercy toward us, that then the mercy that, that you've displayed in us, that, the, that your, your word says the Holy Spirit sheds abroad your love in our hearts, but then just overflow and spill out in love and mercy toward others. Oh, Father, give us grace by your Spirit to even to deny ourselves and to, to lay down our, our selfish ambition and our worldly pursuits and our self-centeredness and fix our eyes on the needs of others. Oh, we need grace to do this. Each one of us still has the root of sin in us. So we ask, Father, that you'd give us mercy increasingly as a church, even to reflect your great mercy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.